ladies and gentlemen, listeners abroad. It's another episode of Disrupt Ed with your host, Ron, St- with your host, Ron Stefanski. I am so excited uh, with our guests today because we're going to engage in a little bit of a social experiment here. So what do I mean by that? I mean that I found an extraordinary human out there in the great expanse of the digital world we all occupy, social media, on LinkedIn. And the way I came upon meeting this person is unique, but it shouldn't be unique. And that is, if we're really going to improve society and human interaction, and if we're really going to use digital technologies to do it, we cannot forget one very simple thing about developing human experiences, customer experiences, and experiences interacting with each other. And that is, we're human. We couldn't meet as many people during the pandemic as we were accustomed to. We didn't go to trade shows. We didn't go out there. So for those of us in the customer experience world or those of us in the marketing or development, business development, sales side of it, we're really stuck scrambling. How do we connect with people when we can't see them and we can't meet with them? And so many of us started resorting to social media as a way to do that. As I developed more and more context, what I learned, though, is I still really needed human interaction. I was getting really, really fit to be tied sitting in my office and Zooming with people all day long or or simply emailing with people. And so I challenged myself every week to reach out to two or three people that I had connected with through mutual contacts that I didn't know at all and just said, hey, can we uh, spend 15 or 20 minutes getting acquainted and find out if we can be helpful to each other? Every time I've done that, I've hit pure gold. And Leah is going to demonstrate and validate what I just said, because that's how we met. I started following her posts. And boy, gee whiz, gosh golly, she has a lot of powerful things to say. And they really resonated with me. Why? Because she's just another fellow human wearing a bow tie. So for those of you who know me outside the podcast, you know I'm a bow tie wearer. And a lot of millennials have come up to me over the years and said, oh, Ron, isn't that cute? Oh, my gosh, you're picking up on our trend of wearing bow ties. And I go back to my photographic digital archive and I say, no, that's not really true. I've been wearing bow ties since the last time they were fashionable. And here's my proof. If you can see this picture, that's me at six years old. And that's my great grandma Rose. And I am wearing a bow tie. So I've worn bow ties for a number of reasons. I had a really strong feeling about them. Uh, when I ent- when I first entered the world of sales, I started wearing them because I was selling in a college setting and walking around on campus being invisible to most people. And I wanted to distinguish myself. And so I felt comfortable wearing bow ties. And you know what happens when you start wearing bow ties? You start collecting stories because everyone has a bow tie story. And then what happens is you give all your friends and acquaintances an excuse to buy you something that they think will uh, interest you at holidays, birthdays, Father's Day, all kinds of events, because they start buying you bow ties and you start collecting a hoard of them, which is what has happened. But you also get these really cool stories. And Leah is my most recent story about finding a fellow bow tie wearer. Now, my probably my funniest experience wearing a 
was in 2015 when I first met uh, Bill Clinton uh, at the Clinton Global Initiative. And I decided, what am I going to do? What kind of bow tie should I wear meeting, you know, with the president of the United States? And so I chose an American tie bow tie to wear. And I showed up and the president being as charming as he is in real life came up to me. And as you can see, I'm wearing my bow tie with my red, white, and blue flag. I don't know if you can make that out, but you get the general point. Anyway, I'm talking to the president and he pulls at my bow tie and he says to me, oh my gosh, Ron, that's a wonderful bow tie. Did you tie that yourself? And I said, yes, I did. He said, wow, that's amazing. That's a really good looking bow tie. Do you think, and a lot of people have said this to me, but do you think I would look good in a bow tie? You're obviously a bow tie wearer. And I said, absolutely, Mr. President. I think you would look boss in a bow tie. He goes, well, you know, the problem I've always had with them, I wear them, you know, with a tuxedo, obviously, but other than that, I don't really wear them because it takes too much time to tie them. And I thought, well, you know, it's interesting. And so as luck would have it, I had my cell phone with me and I pulled it up and I extracted a picture I'd taken the week before. And I said, you know, Mr. President, I don't think it's that hard to tie a bow tie. And here's why I say that. Last week, as you can see from this photo, I showed Jeb Bush how to do it. And if I can show Jeb Bush how to do it, I'm certain you can do it. And he broke out laughing, like, like peeing your pants laughing that hard. And it wasn't until a few moments later that I realized, oh, my God, I just cracked up the former president of the United States. That's the beauty of having bow tie stories. And that's one of the ways I immediately connected with our guest today, Leah Cheney. Leah is one of those people who is a bow tie wearer. They are also one of the last comics standing, enjoyed a previous career as a comedian. And now they head up their own business, Better Growth. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk today about developing a relationship using technology to create human interaction. And Lee and I have had a few conversations now since we've connected, but we're going to do it right in front of you all. And I think you're going to find some interesting things that may apply to your own work and your own work life out there as you're trying to connect better with people. So Leah, finally, welcome to this show, Disrupted, where we talk to the passionate and the purposeful, those do-gooders out there who throughout the disruption that technology is bringing are doing really good stuff for other humans. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Ron. Tell us about yourself. Tell them why I was so intrigued by you, because you have a very unique story. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm also curious why you're intrigued by me. I, I do have the fellow bow tie wearing uh, aspect for sure. Um, you know, I've been an executive for many years in the software as a service space. Um, and I actually am, am, am late to the game of being a D, a DEI advocate. Um, but now that I'm here, I'm dedicated and I'm, I'm showing up for myself, for other humans. Um, I consider myself non-binary. Um, so, you know, my, my pronouns, uh, for those that it, you know, uh, it irritates and for those that support it, are they them? Um, I think I asked those that it irritates, you know, to maybe look within on why we worry so much about how others live their lives. But, um, yeah, I mean, I started out on LinkedIn, uh, to be honest with you, I had a tantrum one day because I was just tired of, 
you know, political theater. I was tired of LGBTQ, you know, after years of progress being, um, again, taking the most marginalized of marginalized community members like the trans youth community um, and putting them back under attack. Um, I grew up with the bipartisan belief that both Republicans and Democrats and Green Party and everyone else was responsible for being good humans at the end of the day. And, um, you know, I grew up where uh, both parties fought for anti-bullying in our schools. And I think, you know, now being a parent, which is probably my most important job, I have a two and a half year old daughter um, and watching the world digress, not only in being um, you know, uh, supportive of the LGBTQ community, but also just being good humans. Um, I just couldn't sit there and be quiet anymore. So I took LinkedIn, which is something that I had been a member of for, you know, like most of us for over 10, 12, 13 years and barely used. One day I put a post out there just kind of talking about how I felt and it turned out I wasn't alone. And over time I've grown about 10,000 followers in a similar space. I, I don't collect followers quickly. I cancel people all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of my story of how I got here today. And, and you know, I, I kept on waiting for people to bail me out and to have a hero. And I think I realize we all have to be a hero right now, like to get this, to get human um, centered communication and respect back on track. We have to all stand up right now. I think you couldn't be more right about that. And I think our listening audience is going to be intrigued by what we talk about here, because I think part of the disruption in our world is um, rests on social interaction, rests on this idea that somehow we've added contempt into the mix. And so we look at people who are unlike us with some level of contempt, and that's a non-starter in terms of creating human interaction. And I can't agree with you more. Uh, I didn't tell you this before the show, but you know, when I was of college age, I was a, I was a college Republican and I've changed political affiliations over the years. Um, but I did because I want, I believed in certain things. Um, but fundamentally, I also believe that at the heart and soul of every political movement is a sense of our own humanity, is a sense of, of finding a better America, finding an American dream that's entirely inclusive. And those kinds of things, um, are not necessarily always reflected in our politi- uh, on our political stage. And I think you're right. It's devolved into the human and personal interactions. I want to go back to something. So let's assume that our audience is as uh, well-spirited as we are about this and people aren't irritated by your they, them pronouns, but maybe you could unpack for people who are, uh, who may not know anyone like you and, and describe what you mean by non-binary and help people understand that a little bit better and why you, ch- you choose to describe yourself that way. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think um, I identified um, as female and as a lesbian for most of my adult life. Um, and as I've spent more time with uh, the youth of America, what I've found is that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of youth are not, you know, even, even youth that don't identify as um, as LGBTQ, um, you know, like most young people are just, they don't believe in, in, in being put in boxes. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think that non-binary tends to, uh, fall in LGBTQ, right? It's, it's those of us that are saying, you know, I don't really need the construct of saying that I, 
um, you know, I'm female or male. Like, I think it's more of, um, you know, I'm a human and I take up space and I live the, I live on my rules, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that's where I am with this, right? Like I, um, we are forced into gender constructs at a very early age. Um, our pivotal time for discovering them is between five and 13, um, as a young person, I felt like I didn't fit in as a female because I wore boys clothing and I enjoyed doing quote unquote boy things like playing with transformers. And, you know, I preferred He-Man to She-Ra, right? And like right. from a very young age, I was treated as other because I didn't fit the mold of male or female. And as I got older and realized, you know, I, I don't want to be a man, um, but I don't identify as a female. Um, I realized that the youth had already discovered that we didn't need so many rules. And so non-binary is a way for me to embrace all aspects of myself as a human. Um, there are aspects of myself where if I had to be gender specific, I fall more into a female category. And then there are aspects, aspects of myself where if I'm forced to be gender specific, I would fall more into masculine category. And so for me in particular, and I think for a growing number of humans in this world, um, we're tired of being told that we have to be A or B. And I think that that fits in a lot with politics, right? Like, I don't want to be it told. It completely to does. <laughs> right. So, right. I, I've, I've moved away from political affiliation for just that reason. I, I think we have to be independent in our thinking about things. But I really appreciate your answer to describing yourself in an, as non-binary because um, it kind of reminds me of Walt Whitman's, you know, classic line, we contain, you know, I contain multitudes, we contain multitudes. I mean, I think that's a reflection of the greater human experience is that we all tap into different sides of our personalities. And I think the other observation that I would uh, completely agree with uh, from the experience of my many nieces and nephews is labels don't mean anything to uh, this generation coming up behind us. Um, they don't want to judge. They don't want to label people and use it as a form of um, of judgment or as a form of limiting people, you know, limiting them or putting them in the boxes. And I think that's a really healthy thing. And I think, um, you know, in my own experience, I'm, I feel like I'm one of those people growing um, and learning more about people who are different than I am. You know, when um, our two sons uh, left the roost and went to college, graduated and wanted to move out and on their own, uh, my wife Kay and I decided we were going to um, embark on a new adult empty nesting adventure. And so we left our home in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we moved into an artist loft in downtown Detroit. And I would say that one of the best, people always ask me, what do you love about Detroit? And what I love about Detroit is meeting so many different people. I also love being a minority for the first time in my life and seeing how other people are treated. You know, I live in a downtown area, which is 80, over 80% African-American, and I'm, um, you know, a very, very white privileged guy. And what I find it to be a blessing is that when you meet people, when you connect with people, um, the requirements are really simple. Interest, respect, openness, non-judgment. I mean, those are really the recipes for interacting as humans. And um, I want to go uh, to the social media side of it because we are talking about disruption. We're, we are talking about how the digital environment informs that. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I was so particularly 
touched that you took me up on an invitation to be on the show because I had followed you for probably three to six months. And I would say that one of the things I've learned about you that I want to learn more about is for a long time, you were not out and about. You were, uh, your identity and your self-expression was uh, closeted as you described it. Yeah. I mean, look, here's, here's the thing, Ron, like I have always been different, like my entire life. Like I said, I, I knew that I was different about five years old. Um, I grew up in rural Texas and it was not a very accepting part of the country. Um, I knew that I, you know, as I told my parents at five, wanted to be a boy because I thought there was only, you know, two options. And I lived most of my life as a tomboy. I lived my life closeted because, you know, I'm an intelligent human and it didn't take long to realize that safety was in saying nothing. Um, I grew up with uh, religious persecution. I grew up, you know, at a time where there was, um, you know, conversion therapy. I've been through more than most humans should have had to go through in order to not be different. And what I realized as I got older is that my difference was my superpower. Um, and that, uh, you know, wow. Can I yeah. just say, wow, that is, that is a really great self insight, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I tried to hide from others and what I, you know, was shamed on by myself and by, you know, um, some of society growing up was what made me, um, what made me more powerful. Right. And so as I got older, I embraced my difference. I, I came out of the closet about 19 to my family and to my close friends. Um, and, you know, I became a stand-up comedian where I was very open about who I was. And I learned to make people laugh with me instead of at me. And that became a power. Um, and then I'm a builder and connector. So I'm able to communicate with others and bring people together. Um, I think where I started to go south in, you know, really being who I wanted to be was when I got into corporate America, into the software as a service world. And I tried to make sure I was never too gay. I was never too different. And so I tried to fit the mold of, you know, it, you know, outwardly, I was quite, you know, obviously a lesbian. But at the same time, I was also, I didn't talk about it. We didn't need to talk about it, right? I had kind of, I had grown up during the time of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and I had kind of taken on that mentality. And, you know, over time, over the next decade or so of being an executive and a leader, I found that more and more um, LGBTQ humans tend, tended to join my team, tended to find safety in seeing my face on the executive, you know, about us page. And um, and one day I realized that I was just sorely, um, I, I wasn't representing the way I should to uh, people who looked up to me. And um, it kind of clicked with one individual who just kind of it was having a hard time and we had a conversation and I realized that they had joined the company because I was LGBTQ, how the last company they'd worked for had no representation. And I realized that I, I needed to step up, that I had a podium, that I had the respect of others. And I started to put myself out there and to be more open and to get more involved with human resources at the companies I was at and to push for more acceptance. And, you know, it's more than tolerance. Like let's grow um, and be a safe place for people of the LGBTQ community to work towards. And, you know, over time, I noticed that more and more people would take on changing their rainbow logo during Gay Pride Month, but you wouldn't really see any efforts. They weren't putting in anything. And that felt wrong to me. Like, if you're going to change your logo, you need to change your attitude. Um, and finally, over time, I found my voice and I started to be confrontational to 
um, particularly cis white males who sat in their privilege and didn't realize how offensive some of the things they said and did were. Um, I realized that not only did people tend to gravitate to my leadership that were in the LGBTQ community, but that we had a growing number of black employees, that we had Latina employees, mm-hmm. um, that others in the diversity spectrum saw me and my colleagues, you know, that were representing diversity to its truest form as a safe haven, or haven as a way they could be psychologically safe at work and talk about who they were, not just show up and hide right. who they were. Um, And so I ended up pushing back on executive members and really getting vocal. Um, And, you know, quite frankly, it made me it made me see the world in a different way. And I really saw that, you know, there was a lot of struggle out there in being LGBTQ and um, and and other areas of diversity and inclusion from cultural to religious to uh, sexuality to size inclusivity. Right. Like there's all kinds of of buckets within diversity Um, and uh, I became an advocate for those that needed an advocate and in turn found myself. And so now I'm unapologetically myself. Um, I go on LinkedIn and I, um, I try to always be a place of hope. I try not to call people out unless I have to. Um, but I also speak up. Um, and, you know, I think I spent my life waiting for, that queer representation, waiting for the Ellen DeGeneres's, waiting for the famous mm-hmm. people who are the hard lifting. And what I've realized is we have to do that lifting ourselves. that there's no reason why Leah Cheney can't be an advocate for the LGBTQ space, that there's no reason why your average human can't stand up and get a following on LinkedIn and make a voice for themselves. And that's what I represent, your average LGBTQ human who's just tired of it. Well, as your average white male over 60 of privilege, <laughs> I guess what I try to represent is not all of us are horrible human beings. And, um, and uh, but a lot of us are a lot of us can do better. You know, I mean, and, can, I, can I cut you off there and say we can't do this when I say we marginalized community members can't do this without the support of allies. And some of my best, strongest allies are cis white males. I don't hate cis white males. I, I No, that's very clear. You love people. I love um, yeah. And, and, I, and I, if I can not- interrupt you for just a second, if you're not following Leah Cheney on LinkedIn, take a minute right now to go link up with her because just being a follower or being a, a connection to her, you'll see her feeds and they will warm your heart. Uh, she is a fantastic, they, sorry, uh, are, okay. I'm still getting comfortable with the pronoun. They are a fantastic writer, communicator, advocate for people who just want to be lifted up. Thank you, Leah, for that. And I just had it. I just had to have people connect because that's how you and I connected. And I am just warmed by so many of your sentiments uh, on human experience as I read and follow you. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, that's the biggest part. I think the the most heartwarming thing for me over this last year of being an advocate outspoken on LinkedIn has been um, how many uh, cis humans, men and, and women who identify as such, who aren't in the LGBTQ community, have come up to me and told me that they have a child who is LGBTQ and how they just want to do right by that child. And I think what I never expected in this journey was actually how many straight allies needed my support in helping them raise a generation of children to be accepted, to be acknowledged, to feel 
um, uh, like they deserve their space in this world. And um, that's definitely been the most exciting part for me that I never, I never saw in this. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's a huge part of my following actually is the straight community trying to be better at supporting the LGBTQ community. Um, and I can't do it without those straight allies. They are everything to us getting to a better place. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I'll share my own experience on LinkedIn because it began with a certain amount of controversy. As I was deciding to build a followership on LinkedIn, I had read all the books. I'd taken some courses. I was experimenting with my voice out there. And I decided, you know, and I learned that, you know, what people really um, respond to is when you speak to your uh, subject matter expertise. And so I chose several areas where I thought I was a subject matter expert and I started posting on them. Uh, one of them was on education, technology, and upskilling. Another area was on uh, the world of business and workforce development and working with marginalized communities to help them become a more successful and prosperous part of the human economy out there. And the third area I started writing about as I began my experiment into building an audience on LinkedIn, I started writing, uh, it was right around the time of George Floyd, and I started writing about Black Lives Matter. And I had this really interesting experience because I have two sons that keep me honest about most things. And my older son came to me and said, Dad, you shouldn't be writing about that right now. This is not your time to talk. You need to stand down. And yet one of the things that kept um, showing up for me was that I was at that point where I was kind of looking at what are the posts that people respond to and how, you know, what are the things that people want to hear from me about? And to a post, every one of my posts uh, talking about something to do with the Black Lives Matter movement had an extraordinary uh, number of people who uh, viewed, liked, and commented on them. And so I had to reconcile those two things. My son, on the one hand, who I trust and respect as a wonderful writer, as a social media person, saying, you know, this may not be your time to do that. And then an audience that was saying, no, we're, we, we want to hear this perspective. And so I went to two of my friends, one of whom is my co-host, uh, Dr. Caesar, and he's a former administrator at the Detroit Public Schools. And I said to Dr. Caesar, look, you and I have known each other for 20 years, and we've talked about Black Lives Matter, and we've talked about issues regarding race uh, for many, many years now. We've presented to school districts on it. We've talked about it in the context of uh, closing uh, the achievement gap. We've talked on numerous occasions about all aspects of this. And yet my sons are telling me maybe I should stand down. And his answer was very simple. He said, no, not at all. He said, no one is looking at your writing to see that you're becoming more and more of an ally and you're getting validation that you're an ally as a white man of privilege. The people who are following you are white men of privilege. They're people like you. And here's where we're at. He said, as an African-American, I really have come to the point in my life where I've recognized that systemic racism, systemic inequality, diversity, equity, inclusion, and the artifices that prevent those from being fully actualized in our society are a consequence of white people. And so we can't take it apart. We need white people to undo what was put in place by white people. And so what you're doing is providing other white individuals with an opportunity 
to learn a little bit more, to be opened up to the experience of understanding why it's not a bad thing when someone says Black Lives Matter and they don't need to raise a post and say all lives matter. They can begin to understand without invective, without snark, without controversy, some of these issues that can divide us. But but to your point, when they're fully developed, become superpowers. I mean, they become superpowers for you. I want to go back to something you said, Lee, and bring it back. Um, and that's when you started talking about the Pride logo, you know, and and putting it out there, but then not really showing up. I think that's true of a lot of DEI initiatives, too. I was talking to a work colleague recently who's African-American, and the company decided to have um, a DEI initiative. And so they were chosen for it. And they're literally the only person of color in the organization. And what they said is, you know, I, I'm grateful that they've asked me to be part of this, but it has to be more than a T-shirt, a logo, um, a slogan that we have. And on that score, at a recent uh, DEI summit here in Detroit, uh, the common consensus was the vast majority of companies that said they were going to do something meaningful about DEI based on the George Floyd experience have not come as far as they'd like to. Only about 30% have really embraced it. Uh, but there's another 30 to 40% of that group who still wants to and is struggling with how to do that. And I think you may have provided in, in this conversation a real answer for those people. And that is, how do you help uh, extend the dialogue? How do you help extend the communication so that those of us who feel awkward about certain things, you know, as I said at the beginning, as I told you this before the show, I still struggle just out of habit with using they, them pronouns. But that's not because I don't uh, want to validate that and validate your experience. I mean, I think it's um, ridiculously insightful to say, you know, you you encompass more aspects of, of both sides of the sexuality spectrum or gender spectrum, and you want your title and your pronouns to reflect that. That seems pretty simple and straightforward. But we have to start having more of these conversations for people to get more comfortable with it uh, and to take the fear out. And then to your point, we have to do something about those people that persist in deciding that somehow they've now been given license to be mean, to be mean-spirited, to be less inclusive, and, and to think that that's okay. Uh, because I think that's what... Uh, has gripped a lot of America over the last couple of years is this tendency toward judgment, this tendency toward contempt. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's weighing on all of us. I'd like your thoughts on that, Leah. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with going back to the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and just call out, you know, we're two uh, Caucasian people speaking on this. But I, I think... Um, Again, we've politicized humans, and uh, to me, it shouldn't be a political Republican versus Democrat to state that Black Lives Matter. Like the fact that that has become po po like a uh, political theater is disgusting. Like, yes, Black Lives Matter, and absolutely right, and right, uh, and just stop the sentence there, right? Well, and I I think that you know systemic racism is um, it is why are you afraid to admit that unless you are overtly racist? And, and I mean, like, 
to deny that we have undoubtedly marginalized um, the black community, that we have undoubtedly um, become negligent in our growth as a society, to understand the horror of what it would be like to have you know, fear of being shot when you're pulled over to not understand how we got here is reckless and it's dangerous to say the least. Um, and that should not be a political statement, right? Like right. lives are human lives and it shouldn't matter what the color of your skin is. It shouldn't matter what your religion is. It shouldn't matter what your sexuality is. It shouldn't matter what the size of your pants are. It shouldn't matter what your IQ is. If you have a heartbeat, you should be treated with the respect and dignity to take up space in this world safely. And at the bare minimum of the human existence, we should make sure that every human has that space safely that doesn't. And, you Man, know, can I just give you an amen on that? That is a powerful statement for those who are listening. This is Disrupt Ed. And we're talking about how to use digital strategies to connect with people. And what you're hearing from today is about connecting with a powerful guest that I have today. They are none other than Leah Cheney, who's joined me to talk about making human connections in a digital and disrupted world that's not always pleasant to people and to humans. Hey everyone, I'm gonna take a pause on that last amen. I think you'll agree with me that Leah Cheney, our guest today on Disrupt Ed, has been talking in a very powerful way about the means by which we show up for other people and that we look at this digital and disrupted world in a different way to make sure that we're making inclusive, positive, connections with each other. So the conversation will continue. Join us in part two, and we'll pick it up from there. Thanks for joining us on Disrupt Ed with Leah Cheney.